Good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, what a wonderful uh, worship we've had so far. Um, what an inspiring song. How great thou art, my soul sings to thee. How great thou art. Um, and the story about, you know, the emperor penguin, you know, the, uh, the sacrifice that they make for their children. Um, it's easy to relate it back to the sacrifice that God made for his creation, you know, by allowing his son to come and on his mission trip, show us righteousness, show us the love of God, what God is really like. Um, today I'd like to talk about the truth. The truth is always the right answer. Or can that be a question mark? Is the truth always the right answer? You know, depend, you know, we live in a world today where relativism is abounds. You know, it can be right for you, but not right for me. You know, you know, your behavior is okay for you, but it's not right for me. And, and that type of relativism, you know, is, pervades our society today. And, um, so the question is, is the truth always the right answer? Or is it a statement, the truth is always the right answer? This quote comes from a movie that I was watching. Um, it's been out for a while, Schindler's List. Um, it deals with the Holocaust, a very tragic part of our human history. And it focuses in on one particular person, Oscar Schindler. Oscar Schindler was a member of the Nazi party. He was a war profiteer. He used Jewish money and Jewish slave labor to enrich himself. And he kept enriching himself and he, through bribes, he rose up into the Nazi party and he had a lot of influence. But somewhere along the way, he stopped seeing the Jews as a means to an end, but started seeing them as a people, as a person. He started liking, started having a relationship with them, and he started seeing them as human beings, as God's creatures. After the war, the, um, the Jewish nation actually declared him to be a righteous man because of his actions. Oscar Schindler spent a lot of time working with the, with the commandant of the concentration camp where he derived his slave labor from. Um, the commandant was a Nazi, and he um, was a very ruthless and bloodthirsty man. He was going through the factory one day around noon, and he wanted, he asked this worker, you know, how do you make a hinge? And the worker very diligently made the hinge and, you know, the commandant timed him. And then the commandant asked him, if you've been here since early this morning, how come your bucket is almost empty? The Jewish man looked at him like a deer caught in a headlight. He wasn't quite sure what to say. And the commandant said, the truth is always the right answer. Well, the man gave the truth that he had not been working very diligently and uh, the commandant promptly shot him. Gone. 
So that brings us to that question, is the truth always the right answer? Well, we can think about there are three schools of thought on human morality. There's three ways to think about human morality. One is neism, which is there's no God, there's no laws, there's no rules. Everybody is, a, is an island unto themselves. You know, whatever they want to do, they can do. There's another one, relativism. Well, let's talk about absolutism. That's the other extreme. So you have no law, and then you have absolutism, which is there is a law, there is a standard, and as Christians, we define that standard as the Bible and God's law, the Ten Commandments. And somewhere in the middle, in this area of gray, there's relativism, and that's where conduct is relative to the circumstances. Each person must decide what is moral or immoral given the circumstances. Everyone is a judge, but there is a law. So, so we have these three schools of thoughts. There's no law, there is a law, and the law changes. So if we look at the uh, categories of situational ethics, there's two categories. One is there's an atheistic where they reject scripture as having any authority as bearing on human morality. From the Humanist Manifesto, um, it quotes, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. The problem with this is that if man is autonomous, there's never a situation where in, in which he could do wrong, and then we're back to no law. There's the religious um, category of situational ethics that alleges the Bible endorses this code of action. Joseph Fletcher argues that situational ethics is a balance between antinomianism without law and legalism, absolute law, and that love is the sole factor in making decisions. That sounds good, but there are actually four problems with love being the uh, sole. Um, what if love is not the appropriate course? We've all heard of tough love. And some, dis who decides what love is? This assumes that love is some ambiguous, no rules cure all. It's similar to playing a game, a sit down at a card game, and the only rule is fairness. I don't know how long that game would last in your house, but it probably would not last much. I don't even know if the cards would get dealt. How many cards do you deal? You know, there's, um, even Fletcher, who is a big proponent of uh, religious, um, confesses that for the situationalists, there are no rules, none at all. Um, the fourth problem, situationalism assumes a sort of infallible omnence that, that we can see all consequences of all our possible actions. You know, and now they can be predicted. Let's go back to that prisoner. What if 
the commandant had lied to the... What if the prisoner had lied to the commandant? Would his life have been spared? How would you like the last action of your life to be a lie? In this case, I support the fact that the truth is always the right answer. When we think about love, we think about the scripture verse that we read today. And it says um, that you should love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the greatest in the first commandment. The second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. You could also think about it the other way, that the commandments support these two laws. Without the commandments, how do we know how to love our neighbor and how to love our God without these two, without these guidelines, parameters, if you want to call them that? So situationalism biblical, um, there's two stories that people like to use as uh, the Bible supporting situational ethics. The first one is Rahab. Rahab lied about harboring the spies, but yet she's commended, you know, both in Hebrews and in James, you know, but Lying is strictly forbidden. In Revelation, they tell us that liars are going to be thrown into the pit of flaming fire. Um, so, so does the Bible support that? But if we look at Hebrews and what it actually says, why is she being commended? So let's flip to Hebrews. Hebrews 11.31 Is she being commended because she lied? On Hebrews 11.31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish with the disobedient, for she received the spies in peace. That's the reason she's commended. She's commended for receiving the spies in peace, not for her lie. And just because the Bible records a fact does not mean it condones its actions. You know, there are many actions that are recorded but not condoned, and that starts way back in chapter 3 of Genesis. You know, those actions are not condoned even though they are recorded. There's another story, too, that they use, and that is um, in Matthew 12. Jesus and the disciples, well, actually, the disciples are were going through the field on a Sabbath day shucking grain. And um, the Pharisees um, were calling the, the disciples, why do your disciples sin? Well, actually, the disciples were not breaking the fourth commandment. They were uh, breaking the tradition of the elders. So... So they really weren't sinning, but they were breaking the tradition of the elders. 
and, and this I never really understood until I started, until I was studying this, then Jesus refers to David's act of taking the showbread, which is clearly illegal. Um, he was actually using a type of argument to point out that the Pharisees were being inconsistent in their argument. They were, the basically what Jesus was saying when he refers to David's act is, David, your hero, actually broke the law, and yet you do not condemn him. Yet my disciples break the uninspired tradition of the elders, and you call it sin. You are being inconsistent. So the two main um, arguments that stories that people use to support situational ethics from the Bible from a biblical standpoint, really, upon further review, don't hold, don't hold water. Some other problems with situational ethics is it excludes most moral truths. It's not clear what love means. You know, it's like playing that game where fairness. Um, it's difficult to implement to see all the consequences of your choice, and uh, it produces inconsistent results. It may approve of evil acts, such as torture and lying. And if a, if a code of ethics could approve of evil acts, that's going back to does the and justify the means. Most Christians will reject that, that the end justifies the means. I'd like to talk about torture and lying for a minute. And then, um, and then move on. First of all, torture. First of all, it's cruel to the person. Um, it deprives the person being tortured of due process of law. We hold the fact that you can remain silent, that you don't have to incriminate yourself as being part of our rights, our legal rights, and that den torture denies that person that right. It treats people as a means rather than an ends. You know, they are no longer a child of God, but they are just information for you to gather. And this is probably what gets me the most about torture, it's not an effective way to gather information. Because under stress, the mind will say, and the person will say anything to get the torturer to stop. So it, it, it doesn't work. It's, it's mean, it's cruel, and it just doesn't work. And, and not only does the torturer damage the victim, but it damages the torturer and the institution that allows that. I don't know if anybody's seen the movie Railway Man. It has Colin Firth in it, Mr. Darcy. That's why I got the movie, because it had Mr. Darcy in it. And uh, Colin Firth was also in uh, The King's Speech. He's an excellent actor, so not knowing much about the movie, I got the, but I didn't know about the actor. The Railway Man is a story of a young man who was captured by the Japanese. He 
in World War II and forced to work on the infamous Bermuda Railway. Uh, Bridge over River Kwai was a, an American version of that event. He was tortured without mercy for over two years. What? And then after the war, he and his fellow prisoners went back to London and Britain, and they lived a very tormented existence for, for 30 or 40 years. One day, he finds out that his torturer is still alive, had somehow escaped the war crimes. So he made plans to go back and get revenge. But somewhere along the way, when he, had, when he was confronting his torturer, he forgave his torturer. He realized that his torturer was also living the same tormented life that he had been living, that they had both been affected by this event. So torture not only affects the victim, it also affects the perpetrator. It also brings a stain upon the institution that allows that. It can strengthen opposition, too. You know, it can make a person more resistant. And, and what are we supposed to do? Matthew 5, 43 to 48 tells us to pray for our enemies. Let's get it exactly right. Matthew 5. five forty-three to 48. You have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father. For he makes the sun rise on the bad and the good and causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense have you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, and so what does this mean to be perfect, just as your heavenly Father? Well, I think it goes back to 43. Love your, or 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think when we, when I, from my personal experience, when I pray for my enemies and those who have done me harm and treated me shabbily, I start to see them as children of God, as people who are broken, just as I am broken. Let's talk about lying for a minute. You know, this is another act that situational ethics condemn, you know, condones lying. So what is a lie exactly? A lie communicates information. It's intended to deceive or mislead. It's known to not be the truth. You do not have to give false information to lie. It does not have to be told with malicious intent. You know, we call those white lies. 
The object of the lie is to deceive or mislead. That's all a lie is. And, and so why is lying wrong? Well, first, it diminishes trust. It's hard to do business or have relationships if you can't believe what the other person is saying. Think about a, any type of a business. Use cars. You know, if, if everybody lied, would there be a used car business? No, there would not be such a thing as a used car. You know, they already got a bad enough reputation, you know, and they try and work. You know, now you have guarantees, you know, the warranty, the product, you know, but can imagine trying to have a, if everybody lied, what kind of business would there be? Um, and that goes to the point, liars would be less believable if everybody lied, because then you wouldn't trust anybody. Lying also treats people as a means rather than an ends, you know. Um, it removes the person's ability to make an informed choice because decisions are made based on false information. And lying cannot be made into a universal principle because it produces inconsistent results. The Bible defines it as being morally wrong. It also corrupts the liar. And if we think about the harm that lies do, if you're lied to, you're deprived of the right to make an informed choice because you don't have the, the facts. You feel badly treated, deceived, manipulated, and you can see the damage that the lies do. You know, if you buy a car and you're lied to about that and it starts to break, you can immediately see the effects um, of that. I talk about the used car business because I actually, I bought a used car that was not what it was intended to be. And, and my wife had a really, um, I was obsessing over this thing for months, you know, cause I knew what it was going to cost me. And, and I was up one night, I couldn't sleep cause I was obsessing over the, you know, who lied to me? Did the salesman lie to me or did the own, you know, the previous owner lie to the salesman? And I was sitting there obsessing. I couldn't sleep and Diane, asked me what I was doing, and I told her, oh, man, you know, I just can't believe, you know, somebody would lie about such a thing like, you know, a car, what's it worth? And she had an answer that, a statement that just kind of, like, changed my life. It was, if that's their character, what hope can they have? And as I thought about that, I thought about, you know, what do I believe? You know, I believe, you know, that one day, the holy city's going to come down and the saved are going to be inside and the unrighteous and the wicked are going to be outside on that plain of Dura and, you know, they're going to be consumed. And I thought about, oh, man, how terrible to be out there. And, and so, th so then I started feeling bad for the guy, you know, that, you know, you know, what hope can he have, you know, if for $5,000 he would lie? you know, sell his soul for $5,000. So um, so that stuck with me. If that is their character, what hope can they have? So 
Oh, going back to the lies, harm that lives do, um, the lie, the person lied to may become untrusting and may seek revenge. And we know that, that if we have been deceived or treated shabbily, we are to pray for our enemies. That's what we are commanded to do, not to seek revenge. The liar also suffers, too, because they must remember their lies and act in conformity with them forever. They can never stop lying about them. Their long-term credibility is at risk. Remember Aesop's tables, fable about the boy that cried wolf? Their long-term credibility is at risk. Their own view of their own integrity is damaged. They find it easier to lie or do things that are... It causes stress and cognitive dissidence. Um, they did a study about white lies, and they found that lying costs money. People, the study was, if the people had a meal they didn't like, but yet they said to the server that they enjoyed the meal, they actually tipped more than if they told the truth. And they, that was the stress. They blamed it on the stress, this cognitive dissonance. We might call it the Holy Spirit, but psychologists call it cognitive dissonance, you know. So um, society is also damaged because others may be encouraged to lie. If it becomes generally accepted, you know, um, institutions, businesses will fail. So when we look at, you know, the list of the harm that lies do, we can really see that. The truth is the right answer. And when we think about what the Bible has to say about lying, I go to John eight forty four. Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. So when you think about that poor prisoner that was shot for telling the truth, we can actually be happy for him that his last act on earth was of Jesus, was a Christian act, was a godly act. And, and so we know what the Bible says about lies. What does it say about the truth? For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That comes from 1 Peter 2.22. So we have what the Bible says about lying and what it says about truth, and they are, it is very clear what it is saying. Um, Ellen White tells us from the thoughts on the Mount of Blessings, everything that Christians do should be as transparent as the sunlight. Truth is of God. Deception in every one of its myriad of forms is of Satan. So I talked about lying and torture and, and I've given you 
examples of why these actions are wrong. I've also given you biblical injunctions. I've done this for two reasons. First, as Christians, we believe the Bible is the, is the fund, you know, is the foundation of our faith. And this, not just our faith, but our life, our actions. But I've also given secular reasons why these things are wrong. Because in a postmodern society, to say the Bible said it's wrong is not going to have as much weight as coming back with facts and evidence and studies to support our position. And, and we are commanded in First Peter to not be afraid, but to sanctify Christ in our hearts and always, always be ready to give an answer or defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope, with gentleness and respect. So we are commanded to always to be ready to defend what we believe. And we can go to secular sources because they have to back up the Bible. We believe the Bible's the truth and the secular sources, you know, if they're objective, they, they will support what we believe. In 1 Corinthians, we think about our actions, you know, and and what are we to do? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to either Jew or to Greek or to the church of God. So if everything we're supposed to do is to bring glory to God, we can go back to that poor prisoner and think, yes, the truth is always the right answer. What would bring more glory to God than our final act being an act that his son would do? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to me except through the Father. No one can come to the Father except through me. I think as I wrap up and we think about our or him, that God will take care of you. You know, this is a promise that he has given to us, that he will take care of us. You know, we, our response is our responsibility. How we, and the outcome is not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. He is going to make all things work for the good. That's his job. Our job is to respond appropriately. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity we had today to come and hear your word. We'd ask that you would uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would always know your will, that we would have the courage to do your will, that we would bring glory to you. We take you at your promise that you will be with us, that you will encourage us, you will strengthen us, and that you will be with us even in our greatest trials. We'd ask that you would watch over us today and grant us safe traveling mercies and um, the opportunity to serve you that we might bring glory to your name. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.